Welcome back to the Sentientism Podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. This episode is a bonus cross-post from the Conscious Basket Show, where I talked to Samantha McCord about sentientism. Samantha has founded Conscious Basket as a marketplace for people trying to take more ethical decisions about the products they buy. In her companion podcast on YouTube, she interviews all sorts of people working to make the world a better place. Why not visit and subscribe to her channels too? I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the podcast as a whole, so why not write a review or give some stars on your listening platform? Every rating, review, subscription and share helps get our ideas about compassion and rationality into more ears and minds. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks as ever for listening. Hey guys, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. And for those of you who are repeat offenders, welcome back to the Conscious Basket Show. My name is Samantha McCord and I am the founder and CEO of Conscious Basket. And on the show, we are going to be interviewing extraordinary people just trying to make a difference in this world and giving you tips on how you can too. So as always, if you like what we do, please subscribe, download a couple episodes and leave a comment below. I will read them all. But for now, let's just dive right in. This also has implications that completely reject all forms of human discrimination Mm -hmm. um, because we should only, you know, grant moral consideration based on sentience, not based on caste or gender or sex or sexuality or race or any of the other anti-human discriminations we fight fight against. So in a way it helps um, with human ethics as well as it does extend our ethics beyond humans. In our episode, we welcome Jamie Woodhouse out of London, who left his 23-year career as a management consultant director to pursue some of his passions like philosophy, politics, and ESG investing. Today, we're going to be discussing the sentientism movement, which is a worldview committed to using evidence and reason to have compassion for all sentient beings. Let's dive right in. Hey guys, welcome back to the Conscious Basket Podcast. My name is Samantha McCord and I will be your host today. And joining us is Jamie Woodhouse. He is a part of the sentientism movement. It's a group that extends compassion for all humans and non-human animals alike, as well as the potential artificial and even alien intelligences. So what he's doing is working on building communities and raising awareness to reduce suffering for all. Welcome, Jamie. How are you? Hey, Samantha, it's great to be here. I'm doing well, thank you. Good, I'm so happy to have you. So let's just dive right into it. Can you explain what sentientism is? Yeah, so if your watchers and listeners only take one thing away, um, sentientism is about evidence, reason, and compassion. Um, So those three words. So in a way, it's a worldview or a philosophy, and it's trying to answer the two, to me, most important questions in philosophy, what's real, and what matters morally, what should we care about? Um, so the first answer, what's real, sentientism says we should be naturalistic. So we should engage with reality, understand evidence of all different types, use our reasoning to form provisional beliefs about what we think might be true. Uh, so it doesn't use religious or supernatural ways of thinking. It just says, let's engage in a, you know, a broadly scientific way to try and understand what's going on around us and what we are. Um, so in that way, it's quite it has a lot in common with people who might describe themselves as skeptics or humanists, or often at least to atheism as well. 
That's just one implication. So it's a naturalism. When it comes to what matters morally, the clue is in the name. It's based on sentience. Um, so it says we should extend compassion for all sentient beings. And for the listeners out there who might have just heard this term for the first time, sentient, can you explain that to them, please? Yeah, it's of central importance. And it, the simplest definition is it's the capacity to have experiences. Um, so as you, I assume, and I am at the moment, we're experiencing uh, the passage of time. We're experiencing positive uh, feelings that we might describe as flourishing. That could be everything from physical pain through to joy, love, a sense of meaning. Um, but we also experience negative things, suffering, you know, physical pains, angst, um, a sense of loss. Um, so any being that experiences something good or something bad counts as a sentient being. Okay. Um, and your next question might be, okay, so which beings are sentient? But... <laughs> yes, that would be the next question. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, sentientism is actually neutral. So Sentientism doesn't say, here's the list of species or types of beings or types of things that are sentient. It just says, because we're naturalistic, we follow the science. So that means, you know, we're never 100% sure, um, but we can still build enough confidence about where sentience is likely to be so that we can make moral judgments. Um, so in practical terms, you know, I'm already highly confident of my own sentience. You could argue that's, you know, probably the thing we're most confident of because we're experiencing it moment to moment. So that's quite visceral and direct. Um, but we can also infer that other beings are sentient as well. So, you know, you and I have never met in person. And I, I wouldn't say I'm 100% confident you're sentient because all I see here is a screen. But <laughs> um, but I am highly confident you're sentient as well because we, you know, you, we're both humans. We share an evolutionary background and set of drivers uh, that I would say have led us to um, you know, be able to monitor ourselves in an advanced way in an environment. And I think really that's where sentience comes from. Um, you, your behaviors and the way you communicate imply and infer that there's some sentience, there's some experiencing going on behind the scenes. Again, I don't know, but there's a, I think a strong inference, but I think your architecture is probably similar to me as well. So if we put you and me in a fMRI scanner or we examine our biology and our neural firings and our synapses, we'd probably see some very similar um, activity going on that again it's very hard to link that 100% with sentience but seems to correlate really really strongly with the presence of sentience more broadly consciousness so so I think we can infer um, which beings are likely to be sentient and in simple terms my personal view and other sentientists will disagree with me because we disagree with each other on many many things <laughs> but my personal view I think is roughly in line with scientific consensus that um, human animals are sentient um, that mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, and certainly most or many of the more complex invertebrates are sentient. There's some question marks about some of the very simplest invertebrates, although I tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. There are some really simple animals, like a sea sponge that's classed as an animal but has no nervous system at all that I'm pretty confident isn't sentient. Um, and while plants, for example, exhibit complex behavior and communication, um, I've seen no evidence so far that they have the information processing capability or the indeed the evolutionary rationale the drive that would mean that plants have any sentience either um so that's where i draw the boundary in simple terms it's you know most human and non-human animals i give the benefit of the doubt i think they do have some ability to suffer mm -hmm. um so i grant yeah compassion to all of them yeah i mean it's difficult when you get down to like an oyster i mean i've heard this oyster yeah. debate a couple of times um but you know for the very obvious 
non-human beings, you know, let's take into consideration a cow um, or a pig or, you know, any other animal. They have a soul. They have feelings. You can, you know, it's been said the fear that they show when they're about to be slaughtered or the pain that the mother feels when the baby calf is taken away, you know, for the dairy cows. So, I mean, we can argue it day in and day out. But the point is, is that these these non-human beings are not being considered in the discussion. And I I, I I agree. And and I think in any naturalistic way of thinking, there's always going to be, you know, fuzzy things around the edges or, you know, edge cases or ongoing philosophical debuts or or areas where we need more scientific research. You know, almost every term has fuzzy boundaries around the edge of it. You know, life, happiness, health, well-being, what does it really mean? And it's hard to be entirely precise, but that doesn't mean the term isn't useful and and while you know i'm really interested in the debates about you know the simplest insects and oysters and whether they're sentient or what their sentient experience is like those i find those interesting generally i i tend to give them the benefit of the doubt because unless we're really confident then there's a risk we're causing harm again Mm -hmm. others would disagree but to your point the vast majority of uh non-human animals that we farm and fish we already incontrovertibly know that they are capable of suffering. And as you say, yes. you know, that fact is largely practically ignored by most people on the planet. It is very ignored. And it, you know, I think that you hit on, hit the nail on the head on a word that I use obviously often consciousness and mm. being conscious and you have um, let's use even a dog as, a, as an example, cause it's held up head on a pedestal. I mean, that dog is excited. You come home. That dog is sad when you're sad. That dog feels your pain when you're feeling pain or fear. And there's just no consideration in the broad scheme for any other animals that are technically okay with being consumed. So, um, I mean, we're... And I give, and you make a really important point because I give quite a sort of scientific approach to how you might infer sentience, right? Evolution and behavior and communications and architecture. The other thing is just look into the eyes of a puppy or a cow or a pig or a chicken and, um, you know, your inbuilt human sense will give you a pretty strong indication. Yeah, you have a feeling with, it's a feeling also, like you you explain it very well in a scientific sense. I am more on the feeling side. I don't know if it's like my femininity or what, but, you know, I think that the unique thing about sentientism is, you know, also the animals and non-human animals, but then also the artificial intelligence. You were saying earlier, I think that you're a sentient. Hey, maybe I'm an artificial (laughs) intelligent robot, but at the same time, I would have consciousness. I would be considered, you know, that, um, what did you call it? The S rate, right? So the suffering risks that you have associated with artificial intelligence. So, you know, it starts the snowball effect into growth of technology. You can take in consideration already living animals, the potential for aliens, um, you know, coming onto (laughs) this planet or, you know, I mean, who knows what's out there in the universe. But I think that if we talk about like the history of sentientism, can you explain really where it came from? Yeah. So, so, um, I guess there's two ways of answering that. One is to talk about the word sentientism and the other one is to talk about the philosophies that feed into it. Um, so let me start with the philosophies. So in a way, there's two parts to sentientism. One is that naturalism um, and, uh, you know, a non-religious, non-supernatural way of understanding with the world. And that has really deep ancient roots. Um, so this isn't something that was invented by Europeans in, um, you know, a few hundred years ago in the Enlightenment. 
scientific ways of thinking and naturalistic ways of thinking have deep ancient roots in African, Asian, European uh, cultures, pretty much any culture going back thousands of years. And arguably, even before humans existed, non-human animals and other types of entities were in a, in a way um, operating in a naturalistic way, right? They engage with the environment, they take information from that environment, whether it's, you know, ultimately embedded in information in DNA or whether they develop the capacity to learn mentally, they're storing information that reflects the environment that helps them succeed, right? So if you really want to push it, you could say naturalism has roots that are even pre-human and certainly can continue outside humans. Um, uh, so there's a rich vein of thought there that ends up, does feed strongly into enlightenment, humanism and atheism and skepticism and free thinking as well. So that's one stream. The other uh, side of sentientism is what you might more broadly call sentiocentrism, which is recognizing the moral okay. salience of all sentient beings. Um, and again, that has deep and ancient roots. You know, this isn't something that a bunch of you know vegans invented in the 1940s. If you go back into Jainism, Buddhism, some aspects of Hinduism, Rastafarianism, and non-religious philosophies, some really interesting early Greek philosophers who are completely naturalistic um, and also cared about uh, non-humans to the extent that they would be vegetarian or vegan. There's um, uh, a blind Arabian philosopher called Al-Mari, who um, I think lived around a probably a thousand years ago now, who was explicitly espousing a sort of naturalistic, but also a you know, view that cared about non-human animals and made some very strident points about, you know, needlessly causing suffering is the wrong thing to do. So both of those philosophical threads are ancient and deep and go way, way back. Um, and I guess they come together in this sentientism which says we should have use evidence and reason when thinking about what to believe and we should care about all sentient beings uh, but the term itself um there's one slightly weird usage of it in the early 1970s but i think the first serious usage of it was actually a criticism of sentientism and i think there's a, a guy called john rodman who was using the term to criticize some of the thinking done by philosophers and uh, like peter singer and psychologists like richard Ryder who were really formalizing something that people had thought for a long while, which was, you know, non-human animals matter as well as human animals. And they started to use this term sentience to describe the capacity for experience. Um, and some might say it's almost the morally salient bit of consciousness, right? It's the capacity to suffer. It doesn't require creativity or intelligence or the ability to plan or loads of the other stuff that you might bundle into consciousness. It's just the moral root, the most important bit that, you know, can they suffer? Um, uh, so they'd already started to talk about sentience as being the, the characteristic we should use to decide which beings matter morally. And uh, Rodman actually used the term sentientism to criticize their view. And he was saying, you know, this sentientism is really just another form of discrimination. So, you know, like racism or sexism or other forms of discrimination, sentientism is, is discriminating against non-sentient beings. Um, so it was first used in a negative context to criticize the philosophy. Um, but in a way, Peter Singer and Richard Ryder and a few others uh, in those branches of ethics adopted the term and said, well, yeah, absolutely it is a discrimination, but the only entities we're discriminating against don't care because they cannot experience anything. They cannot be harmed. They cannot suffer. You know, they are rocks and plants and rivers and trees, and they have instrumental importance because they're important to all the sentient beings. But in terms of actual moral worth, we should discriminate against them. In a way, sentientism is the only moral discrimination because it includes all beings capable of suffering and only excludes 
entities that can't experience anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was always quite an obscure term. So Richard and Peter, uh, Richard Ryder and Peter Singer, framed the term in quite a naturalistic way. You know, it was explicitly not using some sort of religious ethics or a supernatural ethics. It was saying, you know, the essence of morality is actually to care about suffering. And by definition, all sentient beings can suffer, so we should care about them all. And that was really where they framed the argument. Um, uh, so in a way, all I've done to that philosophy is two things. One, I've said, look, we should be naturalistic in thinking about which beings are sentient, mm-hmm. but we should also have a much broader naturalism that says we should use evidence and reason in every single context. So in the same way as a secular humanism says, you know, we use evidence and reason to believe everything, um, uh, not just about our morality. Sentientism mm-hmm. does the same. So it's broadly naturalistic and then cares about all sentient beings. The other thing I've done is where philosophers like Peter Singh and Richard Ryder and others got quite specific about the philosophical system they wanted to use, whether it was utilitarian or whether it favoured pain over, over, over pleasure in terms of waiting. You know, most philosophers then go on to thinking about virtues or rules or consequences or utility in different ways. And I've suggested that we use sentientism in a much more basic way that says, look, let's be neutral about all those different philosophical systems, about how to trade off different interests, about how to take these decisions. All we should do as a baseline platform is to grant moral consideration to all sentient beings. And then after that, we can keep fighting over whether you apply rules or uh, utilitarianism or some other sort of ethical system. But let's at least get that baseline locked in that we believe based on evidence and reason and we don't ignore the suffering of any being at all. Yeah, I mean, you can get into the, you know, like we had mentioned, the oyster conversation or what have you, but the baseline of sentientism isn't being applied today for the majority of uh, human life. And I think I had uh, read online from you that there's around 77 million sentients. And then, well, that's a, that's a that's a guess, right? So I guess. <laughs> so 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 not many people know this term. It is quite, despite the fact it's been around since the nineteen seventies, it never really escaped from academic circles. Um, so that's partly what I'm trying to do is raise awareness of this. What I think is a very simple, powerful idea, and build some communities around it as well. Um, uh, so not many people know about it. You know, in the communities we've developed, there are you know maybe a few few thousand people from around a hundred countries, and it seems to resonate. Um, but in terms of the number of people who know the word and know what it means, I'd still say it's pretty pretty niche. Um, but I think many people do actually think this way already. So as an indication, um, uh, you know, m- I think most people who are atheists or humanists already apply evidence and reason to most fields. That's not true in every case. You know, there are some people who are atheistic but still believe in, um, you know, the tooth fairy or Father Christmas. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but generally, most people who are atheistic or humanistic, you know, do have a broadly naturalistic worldview as well. Um, and generally, most people who are ethically vegan have a sentiocentric worldview as well. The definition of vegan is, uses the word animal rather than sentient. But the reason most ethical vegans care about animals is because they can suffer, which is a characteristic of sentience. So there's a massive overlap there as well. So, yeah, I think if you look across, you know, across cultures and across the world, and you think about how many you know, secular humanist or atheist or skeptic people are there. And you think about how many ethical vegans are there and you think about the intersection of them because there seems to be a synergy between the two as well. Um, yeah, I think there are there are tens of millions, maybe a hundred million people who think this way already, but most of them won't have heard of the word sentientism yet. So mm-hmm. I think it's also just more of like ease of use in terms of diction. So people can understand yeah, animal. Sentientism, it's, yeah, <laughs> five syllables, it's a little well, clunky. 
I think everybody needs to understand the term though, because it is just overarching. It's not just animal life. It's anything that can experience suffering, happiness, pain, yeah. whatever it might be. But I'm oh, and, and it has and it has and I think that's important, right? That's why I like the word, even though it's a bit clunky. <laughs> but it, you know, the the most important thing is the center of the word, sentience. Mm-hmm. Um and the reason we care about other humans, I think, is because of their sentience, because they can suffer and because they can and they can flourish. The reason we care about non-human animals is because they can suffer and because they can flourish. So, you know, the, that I think is why most people morally have a concern for others is because of their sentience. Whether they know that's the term or not, I'd like the fact that the central concept is in the middle of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also means that it has broad implications for human ethics as well. You know, this isn't just about non-human animal ethics. Um, this also has implications that completely reject all forms of human discrimination mm-hmm. um, because we should only, you know, grant moral consideration based on sentience, not based on caste or gender or sex or sexuality or race or any of the other interhuman discriminations we fight fight against. So in a way it helps um, with human ethics as well as it does extend our ethics beyond humans. Yeah, I think that we focus especially, you know, because I focus some, so much on the plant-based animal side, trying to save the people or the animals with no voice that sometimes the discussion gets kind of brushed over on the actual humans that are also suffering today. Yeah. And, you know, the child slavery and, you know, everything under the sun that causes suffering, even to the simplest thing where you're discriminated against for something super silly as a human, right? So it's creating a consensus for everyone to be treated properly and morally, ethically on more of like a higher vibration. So I love the word sentientism and the umbrella that everything goes underneath. But I'm curious, Jamie, from your perspective, because this type of lifestyle doesn't just fall into your lap. You don't wake up one day and you're like, I think I'm going to be a sentient today. Um, So tell me about your journey. Yeah, so um, I guess I came to uh, in a way that echoes those two themes I talked about before, the naturalistic side and the sentiocentric side. Um, so I grew up in, in um, I guess, gently religious environment. So um, as with many people in England, you know, there was a backdrop assumption of a certain form of Christianity. And in my uh, family, it was pretty mild. It was background. It was, you know, grew up in, in the countryside. The church was a centre of, you know, the community. We'd go to church, you know, a few times a year, but never particularly took it seriously. Um, but I drifted away from that in my teenage years, partly um, just through learning about philosophy, learning about the history of religion, learning about comparative religion and the stories of all sorts of different religions. And I guess, one, it became clear to me very quickly that religion was a human constructed thing, <laughs> you know, not, uh, I mean, all of them, right? That was one of the realizations, right? My, you know, I shouldn't say my God, right? Because I'm a good naturalist, but my <laughs> God, how many of these bloody things are there, right? And they all disagree with each other. So that seemed interesting, um, but it undermined my confidence that these things were based on any reality whatsoever um uh, to just the incoherence and the inconsistencies within them you know they just don't logically make sense there was very poor quality evidence backing them up and supporting them so there was an if you like an epistemological rejection where i was like okay i i I remain open to the possibility conceptually these things could be true but they seem vanishingly unlikely given the complete absence of decent quality supporting evidence. So there was a sort of fact, you know, faith-based evidence. Yeah. But the other thing was the, um, 
the other thing was the ethics and um in the conversations i'm having in you know on my own podcast on my own youtube channel that theme comes through strongly as well for some people it was about facts and evidence and it just doesn't seem right but for many people it's also about the ethics that flow through these religious systems so while there's often a deep rich vein of compassion that flows through many of them and you can see that you know, lots of different religions adopted the pre-existing uh, sort of golden rule type things of do unto others as you do unto have done to you and so there's some good ethics flow through there and there's some good compassion there's also some really bad ethics as well um, that continue to this day and have enormous uh, rich powerful prevalence and some of that comes from the fact that most supernatural modes of thought uh, put something is more important than the sentient beings themselves. So they say, yes, we do have compassion and suffering is a bad thing, of course. But what really matters more is the priests, the God, the church, the reputation of the church, uh, the deity themselves. Um, and that, of course, extends even beyond religions too. So whether it's a, you know, a one-party state or an autocratic leader or you know, a cult leader, we all know where that leads. As soon as something is promoted as more important than suffering you tend to end up seeing a lot of suffering um but also in terms of the selectiveness of compassion so you know yes we have compassion because we're a compassionate religion but if you believe in the wrong way or you believe the wrong thing or you don't believe at all or you're the wrong gender or you're the wrong caste or you know and the list goes on right those discriminations um run through um and you know i i find it shocking that even the supposedly most moderate global religions today formalize sexism and in some cases homophobia mm -hmm. and no one seems bothered about it i mean it's just amazing right so so th so those are deeply those discriminations are deeply embedded in the culture so there are ethical challenges as well that led me to reject um a religious worldview too and um so i guess that led me to become an atheist but atheism is just the absence of a belief in a deity it doesn't say anything about morals or ethics or what's good or what's bad at all. So that led me quite naturally onto secular humanism, which says, okay, we have a naturalistic approach. We're atheistic. We don't believe in deities and the supernatural, but we have a universal compassion for all humans. Um, so, you know, I still count myself as a humanist today. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, in partly because of the influence of my sister, who was, you know, was vegetarian and vegan, you know, much earlier than I was, um, uh, over time, I came to look at humanism and just the word humanism and the practice of humanism and the campaigns within humanism and recognize that there was a problem, which is if we're going to have compassion, why should that be restricted just to our species? And surely there are other species that suffer, that suffering matters morally, mm -hmm. um, and we need to extend it. Now, so I started looking around for concepts that would bring the two together because I didn't, you know, there's obviously ethical veganism and the animal ethics movement and animal advocacy independently of uh, that school of thought, but I didn't want to lose the evidence and reason and naturalism of secular humanism as well. So in a way, bringing those two together um, and then finding the word sentientism seemed to link the two together. It was from humanism to sentientism, put sentience at the center, but keep the naturalism, if that made sense. Yeah, completely. I that think a that, long answer. Sorry. No, I love the answer because a lot of things hit home for me as well. And, you know, I found, stumbled upon you um, just through, you know, looking into the different theories and, you know, philosophies around veganism and, yeah. you know, the sentientism. I think that people do, as a, no offense to vegans out there, I know you guys all get upset pretty easily. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but I'm not trying to cause a, a Facebook war over here, but the moral consideration for humans 
in the veganism movement is not taken into consideration as I feel it should be. And so when you're combining the sentientism, you know, you're taking into consideration humans and animals and anything else that might end up suffering in, you know, the making or the living of what you're doing. So I feel that through my journey and what I've been discovering is that I have now realized like I was planning on building the marketplace that I'm working on and it was going to be plant-based. But after all the research I've done, fair trade, making sure that no um, children are harmed, making sure that down to, let's say, the bean in your coffee, we can see the village that it comes from and how the supply chain is not transparent today and how are you supposed to know based on what you buy or what you're doing if it is following your your guidelines to what you deem ethical so i love the idea of sentientism and i love your journey and how you stumbled on it and how you combine the two i think it makes complete sense um and Thank so you. yeah and it's something that i think will definitely catch on i have just a really big feeling about that um, i hope so because i'm i feel very inspired by it. And the, the group, you know, I know you don't like to say you're the leader of the group. I'm not going to say you're the leader, even though he's the leader, but, um, how long have you been really running the show for sentientism and your page? Yeah. So, um, it's been a bit of a personal project for about a couple of years now. And one of the, one of the turning points that made me think about pouring more effort into this was actually a lecture given, uh, hosted by the Humanist UK called the Darwin Day uh, Lectures, and they do it every year. Um, it was a lecture given, I think it was yeah, two, three years ago now, by Dr. Diana Fleischman, who's worth looking at, who has the Twitter handle Sentientist. But she was one of the people who was presenting to an audience of humanists and was talking explicitly about sentience and extending our moral concern uh, more broadly. And it was really that uh, presentation that sort of triggered me into thinking I should take this a bit more seriously and put some more effort into it. So it's been, yeah, two, two and a half years now. Um, and it's, it's all very amateurish, but what we do have so far is, uh, yeah, there's a website called sentientism.info that I'm slowly building up. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written, had some articles published, non-academic articles, hopefully quite readable published in a few different magazines to get the word out. Uh, we have a YouTube channel and a podcast now, which I was bullied into by a wonderful woman called Carol Davis, who's an <laughs> actor in LA. He said, we need to do some videos, interview me, let's. So, and you know, now we have a series, which is great. Um, but but uh, we also have a series of forums and online groups as well, where people have come together to discuss these ideas. And they're open to anyone interested. You know, they're not just for sentientists. Um, the idea is it's a very open, inclusive group. It's just a worldview and an idea to talk about. It's not something where you sign up or you... Um, you're in or you're out or you have to follow certain rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those seem to have taken off. So we have, like I said, probably a few thousand people in those different groups, 90 to 100 different countries. And it's brought together philosophers, academics, activists, writers, policy people. You know, we have you know in- increasing number of celebs um, engaged with the group as well, which is quite good fun. Um, but mostly just interested lay people like me who find the idea compelling, think it's important and think it would be good if we could sort of upgrade baseline human uh, epistemology and ethics to that uh, simple statement. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I'd have to say too, like something that I've noticed with you, I mean, obviously you have another full-time gig, you know, this isn't what you do all day, every day. And I just have to say, you know, my hat is off to you and how hard you work on putting this philosophy out there and gaining traction. And 
I think that it's one of those things where you do have a big heart and everything that you do each day is pushing towards, you know, no suffering and making sure that people are taken in consideration, animals, aliens too. <laughs> Don't forget the aliens. If it comes um, to that. If it ever comes, I mean, honestly, though, I mean, who knows what's out there? Nobody can say yes or no. It's a great consideration. Maybe that happens, right? We need to be open-minded. Yeah. And yeah, the way technology is moving too as well. I mean, there's artificial intelligence will have a conscience and it will come to um, us needing to program rules to make sure that the suffering doesn't extend to our cell phones, right? So thank you so much for doing all the hard work that you do to put this philosophy out there. I think more people need to hear about it. I was like completely blown away about all the work that you do in addition to what you're already doing. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, I was curious cause I, like I said, I, I went, I'm going through this journey of like trying to figure out what, I don't even know if the, a label is appropriate, but like what I believe in. And I was curious, there's always something funny that can come up, but what are some of the common arguments that you hear about sentientism? The arguments against it. Mm -hmm. So um, there are some people who say that the uh, moral circle's gone too wide and we should just focus on humans. Um, and some people are worried that if we extend our moral consideration, you know, for example, to farmed animals, that in somehow we're, some way we're hurting humans. And uh, well, there's, that's true to a degree, right? We're taking away the capacity to um, eat animal flesh and products, right? and some humans enjoy that stuff. Um, uh, overall, it's a win-win, right? Because uh, when you think about zoonotic disease, antimicrobial resistance, climate change, but even just our own ethical comfort and cognitive dissonance, I think if we could work to end animal farming, that would be good for human animals as well as non-human animals and the environment. So often these challenges, I think, are, you know, uh, the answer is quite obvious. It's more a win-win. We just need to cut through some of these social norms. So that's one criticism. Another criticism we touched on before is that it doesn't go far enough and that we need to intrinsically care about plants and rocks and rivers and the environment and ecosystems. And, and I, I'd agree we need to care about those things, but we should care about them because of their impact on sentient beings. And what frustrates me is when many environmentalists will be more ready to grant rights to a river or to a mountain or to an ecosystem than they will to a farmed animal. And that form of environmentalism is really just about the humans. It's not really about a genuine concern for the environment as a whole. You know, if you want to extend your moral consideration beyond sentience, that's great, but don't ignore any of the sentience. Um, so, um, you know, I do struggle with environmentalists who want to keep eating their bacon sandwich. Um, I'm just not sure. You know, I can see what the motivation is, right? It's, it's, it's human reasons, not really a broader compassion. Um, and then on top of that, you have all of the criticisms that have always been thrown at, I guess, atheism, humanism, and naturalistic ways of thinking. You know, there's this religious book, or I had this personal experience of a god, or I took some, you know, strange drugs and it connected me to a different world. And um, and I'm open-minded to all of that stuff, but you know, I will withhold belief until I see better quality evidence. And so mm -hmm. far, I'm not seeing much. So, uh, so those yeah. are those are those are the sort of criticisms. And yeah. there's, and I think there's a final one as well, which you hinted at, which is that. People say, look, it's not, it's not possible. It's unrealistic. And, um, and we can't be perfect, right? We can't live a life that is free of causing suffering. And I say, absolutely. Why should that stop us trying, right? So, so you know, the perfect shouldn't be the en enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. um, like, as you hinted, you know, sometimes vegans do give this impression that they're on some perfect moral pedestal yeah. um, uh, and have achieved some state of, you know, spiritual and ethical purity, um, yeah. 
that's just bullshit, right? That's just bullshit. Even, even, if, even a vegan lifestyle still causes suffering and harm. There's a degree to which it might be unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day with technology we'll get there, but the fact something's hard or maybe even impossible doesn't mean it's not good just to keep trying to do better. I agree with you completely. I think perfectionism is a lie. Um, as much as we all try our best to do our best, I mean, I, it comes into play everywhere in your life. If you try and be too perfect, it's just unachievable. It's not just lowering your suffering, but being too perfect in relationships at work, whatever it might be, being perfect. So perfect will mean that you never actually start something or try something or take a risk. So I fully agree with you that perfectionism is not realistic. It's all about making a couple of conscious decisions. Maybe if you decide to stop eating animal meat today, or you decide to put oat milk instead of regular milk in your coffee, like from anything small to large, just try. And every little thing, if we don't need 200 perfect vegans, I always say this, like you don't need 200 perfect vegans. You need everybody making one or two small choices. And that would make a huge impact on the world. And then of course we need everybody to go vegan. So, (laughs) I mean, if everybody was plant-based, it would make a difference. So so I agree about the steps, right? Every step to reduce suffering is really important and we should welcome and encourage that and make it totally socially normal and just keep making more steps. That's good. That's good. Yes, exactly. And so for people who want to try and start making a difference or maybe join the group, um, I know that you're on Twitter, you have a YouTube channel, website, um, any other places they can find your events coming up or ways to get in touch with you? Yeah. So the the website is probably the one-stop shop because that has the articles, it has the YouTube and the podcast, all the links and the links to all of the different forums and groups there as well. We even have a page, a wall where people can add a personal message and sign up and say, this is why it resonates with me. And an interesting wall of suspected celebrity sentientists as well, who I think already think this way. So um, you'll be surprised at some of the names on there. So that's probably the, the central place to go. But yeah, we have accounts on all of the normal social media uh, uh, platforms. And our biggest community group so far is on Facebook. But yeah, we're on Discord and Telegram and Signal and Everything. All the others as well. So basically, if you Google sentientism, as long as you spell it right, you'll find us. I'll put it in um, the show notes. Great. And I'd love to continue the conversation as well. Like I say, it's not, there's no organization, there's no money, there's no group, there's no governance. It's just a worldview that I hope people will find inspiring and interesting and more more people might adopt. Um, And when 8 billion people agree with it, then the world will be a better place. I agree with you 100%. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was honestly such a pleasure. And I love hearing your perspective on all of this. I agree with you that if everybody maybe did this, you know, for a portion of their life or not 100% of everything, it would be so wonderful. But um, as I said, guys, I'll put the information in the show notes where you can find Jamie and the sentientism movement. But thank you so much again, Jamie, for joining us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thank you all for joining us on another episode of Conscious Basket. And just a small reminder, Conscious Basket is not just hosting interviews. We are in the process of launching our marketplace where our goal is to make it super easy for you to make conscious decisions about what you're buying by knowing the origin of the products and services. We're using our technology to highlight a transparent supply chain with our vendors, which means you know what goes into those products and where they came from to make sure those things you buy don't weigh on your conscience. And to ensure this peace of mind, we have developed a score to rank the sustainability of the purchase. For instance, how much water is being used, trees saved, animal lives, human rights, and so on. So. 
If you're an entrepreneur with a sustainable product and would be interested in being on the platform, please email us at info at consciousbasket.com. Also, if you're an entrepreneur, thought leader, or academic that would like to be a guest on the show, please drop us a line at the same email. And if you're just interested in taking a closer look at us, you can also take a look at our website, which is www.consciousbasket.com. And as always, you can explore the topics we discussed in the show notes and find many more topics on all of our social platforms. So give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Conscious Basket. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our show and leave us a comment with any key takeaways. I read them all. Share with your friends, family, post a screenshot on your social about the podcast so that we can extend our reach to help propel our movement forward. Finally, just another small reminder that perfectionism is not the goal here. In my opinion, perfectionism is what gets in the way of all of us collectively picking what I like to call your thing, which is whatever you choose to make a positive impact on this world. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?